morning because in fact we're going to be looking at the Trinity which is uh, something which I think that probably the Trinity is made but not really gone into not really what I call milk of that understanding of God and just want to read one verse from Deuteronomy and you will recognize it instantly hear O Israel the Lord our God is one Lord and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might hear O Israel the Lord our God is one Lord now the question I want to ask is how does that tie up with the fact that the scripture teaches that God is triune or I like uh, the Wesley hymn God in three persons blessed trinity how does that tie up with the trinity now it's important to realize that when we come to this doctrine in the scriptures nobody sat down and ever thought it up okay no one ever sort of came up with the doctrine of the Trinity but as the early church grew in a greater understanding of the scriptures and the New Testament had been fully compiled it just became obvious that the doctrine was there no one thought it up it was sort of found it was just in the scriptures and yet there is no systematic teaching in the Bible about the Trinity now if you were to go through Romans for example you'll find a systematic treatment that Paul the Apostle does of certain doctrines and they're all laid up they're all laid out they're all nicely tied up they're there to be read and learned understood but it's not like that with the Trinity but then neither is it like that with angels neither is it like that with demons there are many things in the scriptures that there is no systematic teaching at all but if you have a little you know sort of dabble you know from start to finish you find that it's all there they're like threads and you can follow the thread and the Trinity is one thread that is interwoven through every truth of the Christian life and I want us to follow that thread and see where it takes us today and it's interesting that the real reason that the doctrine of the Trinity was found to be in the scriptures was in fact to refute wrong teaching that was coming into the church after two three hundred years of Jesus returning to heaven that in fact as various teachings came out people thought, oh, that doesn't sound quite right and they would go into the scriptures and in order to refute them they discovered the truth of the Trinity now don't expect to understand this doctrine any more than you'll understand Einstein's special theory of relativity don't expect me to either <laughs> alright there are many things that one can get as deep an understanding as you can from but there's no way that we'll understand exhaustively now it's been said of the scriptures that they're like a river that the edge is so shallow that a lamb can paddle and the middle so deep a rhinoceros can swim now 
in every aspect of the Christian life. If you're only paddling on the edges, no problem. But if you're able to dive in and swim in the middle, do it. God will teach each one of us according to how far we've come with him. And we need to just understand as much as we can. And let me say as well that when you don't understand something, I mean, we can't fully understand that God is triune. But that doesn't mean it's invalid to believe it. I don't understand how a television works. I just haven't the foggiest idea how it works. But I can still go over to a television set and turn it on. It's good that I know how to turn a TV on. But I don't understand how it works. And also, interestingly enough, what little I do know is that no one knows how a television works. I mean, all they're doing is arranging the transference of light. And no one knows what light is, you see. So even in the area of physics, uh, you know, there is so much we don't understand. But lack of understanding is no valid reason. I've heard people argue, oh, I don't understand this trinity. It's a load of bunk. Well, no, that is, you know, there is just no validity in that kind of outlook in regards to science as well as theology. Now, basically the doctrine of the Trinity, what is it? The Bible teaches that God is one, that there is one God, and that there are three equally divine agents of salvation. Three in one. Now let me use a technical word that's a good one to know. That is what we call an antinomy. An antinomy, defined in the dictionary, is a contradiction within a law. An antinomy is when you can take evidence of something and using that quite logically and fairly and justly you can reach two opposite or seemingly opposite conclusions. Now, if you had total understanding, you would be able to reconcile that seeming contradiction, but only if you had total understanding. Now, antinomy appears in science. There are scientific antinomies. I've already mentioned light. I'm going to mention it again. Modern physics can demonstrate quite clearly that light is particle motion and you can demonstrate that conclusively you can also demonstrate quite conclusively that light is a wave motion now our logical minds tell us it can't be both but when you study light comprehensively you can prove it's particle motion you can prove that it's wave motion it's an antinomy another example for that would be Einstein's parallel lines? They meet in infinity. Now the definition of parallel lines is that they never meet. But in infinity, there's good reason to believe curved universes for all you scientifically inclined people. There's good reason to believe that they do. It's an antinomy. And we just simply do not understand enough to reconcile that difference. But it's a fact and it happens in science, scientists recognize antinomies. So when we talk about a God, one God, three in one, and people say, oh, that's absurd, scientists are quite happy to believe it of science, and it's no problem for us to believe it 
about God himself. And it is important to realise that when I say that it's an antinomy, that's not a doctrinal cop-out. You get antinomies in science, and we're dealing with one here. Another antinomy from the scripture will be this whole thing about God's sovereignty. Does man have free will? If everything is predestined, which the Bible says it is, because God is sovereign, the king's heart, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, he turneth it with us wherever he will, that's scriptural. God has predestined everything. But on the other hand, does that mean that man doesn't have free will? Well, the Bible says he does. So there we have two seemingly contradictive statements, but they're both true. We can't reconcile them, though. In heaven, where we'll have total perspective, then we will. But until then, you just have to accept them on, you know, on faith, in exactly the same way that a scientist accepts the antinomies he finds on faith. It's not invalid, just because we don't understand it. So then, the contradictions are there, but only because we haven't sufficient understanding. As by way of intro, what I want to do is look at three things. I want us to look at the basis of the doctrine of Scripture. Then I want us to look at the outworking. I'm talking quickly, by the way, so there's a lot to get through. Uh, firstly, the basis of the doctrine. Secondly, the outworking of the doctrine. And then I just want to deal briefly with uh, some early false teaching that came into the church. <coughs> now then, the very first hint that you get of the Trinity is in Genesis 1, verses 1 to 3, right at the beginning of the Bible. Let me read it to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Now, if you link that with John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word. John 1 verse 1 is the New Testament counterpart to Genesis 1 verse 1. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. Put those together, and what you have is God, the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and also God said, let there be light, and the Spirit, the Spirit was brooding over the face of the waters. That's what you've got. God, the Word, and the Spirit. Interesting also, in Genesis chapter 1, God's name in the Hebrew is in the plural. Now you'd only realise that by going into the Hebrew of it. God's name in Genesis chapter 1 is in the plural. The plural is Elohim and the singular is El. Now the singular form of God's name, El, is used some 250 times in the Old Testament. Elohim, the plural, is used over 2,000 times. Now, I think that's interesting. Mm -hmm. A plural name of God in the Hebrew. Now, in Psalm 33, verse 6, the psalmist says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all their host by the breath of his mouth. So then, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made. There's the word, and the Lord is God. And by the breath of his mouth... Now that word breath is interesting, both in Hebrew and in Greek, because here the word is ruach, breath, 
and it means wind or spirit. In Hebrew, you've got the same word for breath, wind, and spirit. Now, you get that in the Greek as well, pneuma. The same word for wind, spirit, or breath. So, can you see here that what we've got is by the word, in the beginning was the word, of the Lord, and the Lord here is Elohim, God, the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath or spirit of his mouth. Can you see that? There it is. The Word, God, and the Spirit. Now, Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews says this, By faith, because you can't fully understand it, by faith we understand, interesting, when it comes to the creation of the universe, all you Carl Sagan fans, there is no way to prove it, you see. I mean, the most tight scientific theory astronomically about the beginning of the universe has got to be taken on faith because science deals with the observable and unless a scientist can get there to observe it all he can do is put forward a theory so even people who believe billions of years ago nothing turned into something and I've never had that explained to me by an atheist they are taking that as much on faith because it can't be proven as you and I in saying that God said it and it came into being. They're taking it as much on faith as we are. By faith, we understand that the world was created by the word of God. Now, the writer to the Hebrews would have been absolutely familiar with the implications of John's gospel when John says, in the beginning was the word. And he goes on to say, the word became flesh. Can you see the way that linking the Old Testament with the New Testament right from the beginning We've got God, we've got the Word, who we know to be Jesus, and we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity are there throughout. Now in Genesis 1.26, when it comes to actually creating people, we have this, and this is interesting. Genesis 1.26, then God said, now I want you to remember that the word God here is in the plural, then God said, let us make man in our image now that verse when God says let us make man in our image there are two possible things that that could be it either means that God himself there's a plurality there or it refers to the angels and you've only got to go into Hebrews chapter 1 to realise that this is not the angels this is God speaking of himself and he says let us make man in our image and then it goes on in verse 27 it says so God created man in his own image <coughs> can you see here when God thinks of himself it's plural but when we think of God it's singular God said let us make man in our image so God created man in his own image can you see that when God thinks of himself it's us when we think of him, it's him, not them, it's him. There's that antinomy. You hit it all the time. And the first express statement of the Trinity in the Bible, where it is absolutely explicit rather than just implicit, is Matthew 28 verse 19, when Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit 
Now there is the first absolutely expressed statement of the Trinity. Now the main teaching about the Trinity comes in John 14 and John 16, and I just want to, you know, say a bit about it here and there. It's quite important. Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father. He said, come on Jesus, show us God. Show us the Father. And Jesus replied to Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Now, a few verses later, Jesus says to them, I will pray the Father. As he's talking about the Holy Spirit now. I will pray the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth. Now, there's a couple of things there that are quite important. I will pray the Father and he will give you another counsellor. Now, in the Greek, there are different words for another. Now, say, for instance, uh, I had two cars lined up. Here's a Maxi and here's a Mini. All right, and I say, right, here's a car. And I point to the Maxi. I say, here's another car. And I point to the Mini. That would not be the Greek word that's used. Now I've got two maxis. I point to the first maxi and I say, here's a car. I point to the second maxi and I say, here's another car. That's the word in Greek that's used here. It means another of exactly the same kind. Can you see that? Now Jesus had been their counsellor or their comforter and now he says I'm going to send you another of exactly the same kind. Remember he's speaking here of the Holy Spirit. Now this word counsellor or comforter is interesting. It's the word paracletus, the word used of the Holy Spirit. It's exactly the same word that John uses in his epistle when speaking of Jesus he says we have an advocate with the Father. Same Greek word. Advocate, counsellor, comforter, they're all the same. So Jesus says I will send you another of exactly the same kind, counsellor, and he uses the same word that John the Apostle uses of him, advocate. So can you see what's happening here? But in fact, when Jesus is talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, that is how I am going to come back to you. I will come back to you through the Holy Spirit. And it also, he also says that this Spirit of Truth, he said, to be with you forever. To be with you forever. And then at the close of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, I am with you always to the close of the age. Can you see the tie-up that we're getting here from the teaching of the Scripture? Another interesting verse in John 16 this time, when Jesus says to the disciples, a little while and you will see me no more. And yet again, a little while, you will see me. And that, that right confused the disciples. And it confuses us even more because in English it doesn't bring out what the Greek says in our translations. In a little while you will see me no more because Jesus was going to ascend to heaven. He was going to go back to his Father in heaven. And then he said, and again in a little while you will see me. Now this was talking about the Holy Spirit because when Jesus, the first time he uses that word to see, it means to see with your eyes, physically. The second time he uses that, uh, he says to see, you will see me again. That means to experience subjectively. 
not see objectively, but to experience subjectively. Can you see this absolute tie-up between Jesus and the Holy Spirit? So, what we have here is that Jesus himself believes in and describes the Trinity as three distinct persons. God, his Father, himself, and the Holy Spirit, who throughout Scripture is very clearly a he, not an it. Don't call him an it. I wouldn't like it if you said, oh, it's come to speak to us again today. <laughs> well, don't do it to the Holy Spirit. He's a him. You see. I'm sure he's very proud of it as well. He's a person. So Jesus clearly describes the Trinity, three distinct divine persons. And yet in John 17, when he prays, he says to his Father, this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the one true God. So Jesus believed that God is one and yet were three distinct persons and he was one of them. And that's the belief of Jesus. Now it's significant how guarded Scripture is in permitting these distinctions to be made. There are three persons in the Godhead but there is one God and Scripture is very very careful about you know letting the distinctions be drawn too much I'm only going to give one example here so we can't go into it in that much detail but get this when Jesus told the church to baptise he didn't tell them to baptise in three names he says baptise them in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit can you see that? because it's three in one he didn't say baptism in the names plural of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit but baptism in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit so there you have it again this antinomy three in one God in three persons blessed Trinity now I want to move on to the outworking of the doctrine God is three in one so what we may all be ringing in harmony, those who are still awake. Yes, one or two. <laughs> what about the outworking of the doctrine of the Trinity? Now, Jesus said a very interesting thing. He said, they shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free. Every doctrine in the Scripture, when you realize it, gives you permission to live differently than how you were before you knew it was there. Now what do I mean by that? That a doctrine gives you permission to do something. Well, when you realise the fact of the buoyancy of water, that permits you to swim. And it opens up new horizons. Because it would be perfectly you know, valid for someone to look in, you know, into a sort of a deep river or sea on a boat and think, well, if I jump overboard, bang, I just go straight down. And that would deter you from swimming, wouldn't it? But when you realise that the truth of the matter is that that water will hold you up, it's buoyant, then you've suddenly got permission to swim. And you can do something that you wouldn't have done before because you didn't realise it was safe. So can you see that? And I think God wants some of us to swim today. 
by realising exactly what the, the, the truth of this doctrine permits us to do. I want to, to, you know, to just home in on this. What does the fact, and therefore the doctrine, of the Trinity allow us to experience? <coughs> what does the fact, and therefore the doctrine, and it's only a doctrine because it's a fact. There's false doctrine and you're wasting your time. A good example of false doctrine would be it would be alright to walk on water. You wouldn't get very far then. God could enable you to do it. But I mean, doctrine has got to be true. So because the Trinity is the fact, a truth, it's a doctrine in the Scriptures. What does that empower us to experience? Now I just want to have uh, a logical progression of thought here. Follow me if you can. The fact that God created us means that our existence and our universe is real and not illusory. Why do I say that? I say that because there are many people in the world today and many faiths, particularly in the, in the East, whose belief is that we are just a figment in God's mind. The universe is not actually solidly there. We think it is, but that's only because we're perceiving it. It's not really there, and we're just in God's mind. We don't actually exist. Pantheism, if you want the technical term. Now then, one of the um, Eastern poets raised a question. And he said, if when I'm asleep, I'm a man dreaming I'm a butterfly, how do I know when I'm awake that I'm not a butterfly dreaming I'm a man. Now that is a very powerful metaphysical problem and it's one that the East has to face in a very strong way because they have no reason to believe the universe is there because they do not believe that a God actually put it there. This is the atheist has similar problems and perhaps on the more atheistic front perhaps You'll remember Descartes' famous statement, I think, therefore, I am. Now, a modern writer, Graham Edge, who's drummer with the Moody Blues, he's a poet as well, he, he played around with that, and the modern version of that is, I think, I think I am. Therefore, I am, I think. <laughs> and the certainty has gone out of it. And the reason that the certainty has gone out of it is that we don't believe in God anymore. And that is one of the logical conclusions of atheism or in the East, pantheism. Atheism, there is no God. Pantheism, the universe is itself the impersonal God. You can never be sure that you actually exist. It's a problem for many, many people. Madness, many forms of madness are when people can no longer distinguish between what is actually there and what are just their own sense perceptions. Well, that is the logical conclusion of atheism. None of us would be able to tell the difference because you could never be sure. So the fact that God has created us means that we are real. We are actually here. We're not dreams. I remember talking to a Jewish man once. I was hitching down from the Midlands to London and this guy, he's a Jew, he's not a believer, he's a Jew and I said to him, I said to him, how do you know? Because he, he, he had found himself a wife and he loved her very much and I said, how do you know when you leave your wife that she's still there? And he said, I don't, but I just hope she is. And this was real to him 
because he could see that in not believing in God he had no basis for believing she was real <coughs> that he wasn't just a figment in the universe's mind in God's mind that she didn't just exist as an image because he didn't believe in God and therefore that truth was swept away from him so point one here the fact that God created us means that we can know that we are real now the second point the fact that God created us in his own image means that we have genuine free will just like he does God said let there be light and there was light now that is free will God has free will now God has created us in his own image we have free will in a limited sense we're not all powerful like he is but we genuinely have free will now the position that modern man has put himself in having rejected a God who is there having come therefore to the belief they skip this point about the universe really existing they, they bundle that into the philosophic dustbin and won't look at it so they say right we're evolving and life is the whole universe is a result of impersonal forces therefore free will is lunatic isn't it what you do is purely a result of the chemicals in your body the DNA template that you inherited biological, biologically from your forebears and your psychological processing from a young person so therefore people say and this belief is called um, it's a deterministic belief that every man's action has already been determined by chemical factors, social factors and psychological factors before he does it therefore you blotted out man as an individual now that's the logical conclusion of modern belief today now we know the fact that God has made us in his own image means that you and I genuinely have free will what we think, what we feel, what we say, what we do, it does matter we're not just cogs in the evolutionary machine we really do matter and it's important for us to understand that and thirdly the fact that God is triune and this is what we're dealing with the fact that God is three in one has two natural consequences and that's what I want us to look at the relationship that God has with himself within the Godhead and you see that Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The relationship that the fact that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit that is the basis for a relationship with your own self. Can you see God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit he has a relationship with himself. Now that is the basis for a true and genuine relationship with yourself. So what I'm talking about here is my relationship with me. You must have heard the phrase identity crisis. And people go through identity crisis because they're trying to find out who they are. Their relationship with themselves is all wrong. You can't have a relationship with someone unless you know them. And people have identity crises because they don't know themselves. Their relationship with themselves is wrong. Isn't it fascinating? that if indeed we're told to love the Lord our God with everything we've got isn't it incredible that he should then say that you must love your neighbor as yourself 
Because if your relationship with yourself isn't right, your relationship with other people isn't going to be either. Now Christians are the one people who have good reason and the power as well to really have a good relationship with themselves. And a lot of Christians have a very bad relationship with themselves. God has a good relationship with himself. I mean, it, throughout eternity, he was there, it was just him, and he loved it, and he was totally fulfilled. God didn't need to create in order to be fulfilled. That was just an extra he wanted to do. How self-fulfilled are we? This is why lots of people, and I'm not against music and radios blaring out, or anything like that at all, but this is why there are many people who must constantly have noise. Because left to themselves, they don't know what to do. <coughs> With themselves, they're like a husband and wife who have lived together for 40 years, they haven't worked on the relationship and they're strangers. Nothing to talk about. Now they're like that with themselves. Also, there are many thoughts they want to push away because their conscience is searing them. And it clowns up that relationship they have <coughs> with themselves. Can you be on your own? That's a very good it's a very good guideline to see that. Some people they can't be on their own. Or leave them on their own, they've got to do something. They can't just sit down and spend a bit of time with themselves and the Lord. You see, it's very good to be able to do that. We're running away from ourselves. Now then, you know, the fact that God has a relationship within himself gives us permission to have a good relationship with our own selves as well. And, you know, I can say in some ways that over the years I find that my own relationship with myself is improving. Sometimes it's not that good. I do end up fighting with myself. I end up condemning myself and down on myself and punishing myself. Can you see what that is? That's as bad that I do that to me in God's eyes as if I did it to you. And when you condemn yourself, there's nothing virtuous or humble about that. This is bad in God's eyes as if you went around condemning everyone else. You know, our relationship with ourselves ought to be improving all the time because we are in God's image. And the second thing that that relates to is that the relationship that God has with himself within the Godhead is the basis for genuine relationships with each other. Now, this is why your relationship with yourself is important. If you can't accept yourself, you won't accept other people. If you condemn yourself all the time, that's got to spill over onto other people. If you love yourself and accept yourself, then you will love your neighbour as yourself. And that's the way it should be. So here we have fellowship. The Trinity gives us permission to have fellowship. Now, God experiences continuous communion, communication, and community within himself. You can see the similarity of those words. Communion, communication, and community. And we are made in God's image. That is what we're supposed to have with each other. You could go further. Uh, you know, and this is a philosophical point, I won't dwell on it. <coughs> There's a real sense in which nothing short of a triune God could explain the universe as it is anyway. Those of you who want to dwell on that can, I'm not going to stay there. But the communal nature of man is a direct result of the fact that he's created in God's image. 
God is a communal person. Well, this is why man is gregarious. This is why man needs fellowship. This is why, no matter how much some people may attempt it, no man is an island. And that came from Huxley, a man who shouldn't be saying something like that because the result of his philosophy is that it just doesn't matter whether you're an island or not. You couldn't even be sure you exist, let alone anyone else. But even Huxley realised that. No man is an island, and that's because he is made in the image of the very God that Huxley would never accept as being there. And that is very interesting. And that this communal nature of God is the basis of having a genuine rapport, communication, relationship with other people around us. Now this would include non-Christians as well, but I want to home in on the fact of it being within the church. And that, concerning us here, the fact of the Trinity and the unity of God gives us permission for the unity of his church, his people. The fact that God is one gives us permission as his church to be one as well. Now there are certain things that I want to say about the nature of the Trinity and then I'm going to apply it to the church. You'll get the idea as I go along. Firstly, there is mutual honour and love between the persons of the Trinity. Mutual honour and love between the persons of the Trinity. Jesus says, speaking about the Holy Spirit, when the Counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he shall bear witness to me. The Holy Spirit was going to come to bear witness to Jesus, to lift him up. Mutual love and honour. In John 17, Jesus prays to God and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Can you see the give and take in the Trinity? Now then, let me read some verses from um, when Paul writes to the church. But Philippi, and this is Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness, but in humility. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, we have permission to do that, because that's what God does all the time. A second point, there is absolute coordination between the persons of the Trinity, i.e. they work together in perfect harmony. The example I want to give you of that from the scriptures is the intro that Paul does uh, to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And what he says is this, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, Holy Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And the creed of the early church was Jesus' Lord. So there's the Spirit, and now we've got Jesus. There are varieties of working, but it is the same God, God the Father, who inspires them all in everyone. So the gifts of the Spirit aren't just the gifts of the Spirit, they're the gifts of the Trinity, and the whole Trinity is tied up in it. And that mar that, that puts it in perspective. That really puts that in perspective. The whole of the Trinity is involved in everything that one of the other persons do. So you've got this utter coordination 
a ministerial oneness, this functional unity in the Trinity. And when Paul writes to Philippians, he tells them this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he also says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. See, that coordination is to be worked out amongst us as the Church. And thirdly, the persons of the Trinity demonstrate unity not uniformity and what do I mean by that this is where it comes about them being distinct persons God wants to work to unite his people because he is united but one thing that I've been very struck by is that there is a big difference between uniting people and unifying them I was fascinated that the moon is call themselves the unification church because individuality and personality is beaten out I'm not necessarily meaning physically although it has happened but it's such a tight system individuality is not permitted they are unified they are uniform they are made all the same where that happens it's of the devil depersonalization whether it's secular or spiritual is satanic and evil spirits are behind it every time and I don't care what the movement's called evil spirits are behind depersonalization and we see this that that the persons of the Trinity are distinct persons with distinct jobs to do. They're not all doing the same thing, although they're all working together. I want to give you examples of this. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The Father, God the Father, is the originator and planner of redemption, i.e. He thought it up. And in Ephesians 1 verse 5, Paul says, He, referring to God the Father, destined us in love i.e. he decided to do it he destined us in love to be his sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will God the Father planned salvation it was his idea he was the originator of it now the Son God the Son Jesus is the means and enactment of salvation again in Ephesians Paul says in him this is talking about Christ, God the Son. In Him, God the Son, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So, God thought up the idea of salvation. Jesus came to make it viable. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit is the executor of salvation. Now, what do I mean by executor? An executor of the will is the person who makes available the benefits that have been obtained for you. The Holy Spirit is the executor. The executor is the one who makes available 
to you the benefits of what have been secured for you. And when Paul writes the Thessalonians, he says this, God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification, which is continuously growing in the Lord. God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Can you see the distinct persons with distinct jobs to do, different jobs, but all tied up in the bundle of the one true God, working together side by side. So what we can conclude from this is that within the Trinity, there is unity of purpose, but distinction of persons and function. Unity of purpose, but distinction of person persons and function and to use a phrase that's helpful for those who find it helpful that God demonstrates that the nature of the universe and of man is diversity within unity diversity within unity now this is what we should be seeing in the church I want to home in on this it is not either unity resulting in uniformity and neither is it diversity resulting in being divided. Now then, I want to home in on this. The church, the nature of God and the nature of, ch of the church is not or should not be unity resulting in uniformity. What do I mean by that? The Colossians had experience of teachers coming to them who stressed unity to the detriment of individuality and what Paul had to write to them is this let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or in regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath these are only a shadow of what is to come let no one disqualify you insisting on self-abasement and worship of angels, etc., etc. And he goes on, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the universe, because demons are behind legalism, don't, don't get into your head that the Holy Spirit is legalistic. Demons are behind legalism. And he says, If you die to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Having a legalistic Christian life isn't unworldly, it's worldly. It's worldly, not spiritual, it's worldly. Why do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not touch, do not taste? <coughs> referring to things which all perish as they are used. So can you see that the Colossian Christians are coming under the umbrella of teachers who are making them all the same? No diversity. Now Paul writes them, he says, have none of it, because that's of the devil. Unity, yes, but there's got to be diversity as well. Now then, at Corinth, there was the other problem, because the Corinthians were stressing diversity and forgetting all about unity, and that is when you get divided. And so Paul has to write to the Corinthians, and what he says to them is this, he says, I appeal to you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then he goes on to say that some of them were saying, well, look, I'm for Apollos and I'm for Paul and 
I'm for Barnabas and I'm for him and I'm for her and all this kind of thing. And then Paul goes on a couple of chapters later and he says to them, I couldn't address you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. You weren't ready for it. You're still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving like ordinary men? When one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely men? So can you see that the Corinthians were stressing diversity, and they were not into being truly individuals, they were into individualism which is wrong. And each of them were living out their own individuality at the total expense of other people around them. So can you see that the nature of the church is not unity resulting in uniformity, everyone being the same. Neither is it diversity resulting in being divided. And this happens a lot, you know, most churches I come across, or a lot of them, sadly too many, their slogan is, we're all for unity as long as you do it our way. And that's got to go. So it's unity and diversity. You see this in the teaching of Paul the Apostle on the body of Christ, the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 27. Very interesting. Paul says, you are the body. Now there's the necessity of unity. You are the body of Christ. And individually, there's a necess the necessity of diversity members of it. You are the body unity of Christ and individually diversity members of it. Now there's a parallel verse to that in Romans and it comes out even more clearly. You see Paul wanted to get this across. He was trying to get it across. And in Romans 12 verse 5 Paul says, so we though many diversity are one body unity in Christ and individually diversity members one of another unity God the creator and sustainer of the universe is diversity within unity and that is the nature of the universe and that is the nature of the church we need to realize that and live it out don't try the ecumenical movement is just not going to work and it's not going to work because any attempt to make Christians one is going to fail from the start. Because the teaching of Scripture is that we are one in the Spirit. And it's when we see it and believe it that we'll start acting like it. Don't try and be one, become one with Christians you're not one with. Realize you are one with them, whether you like it or not. And start acting like it. You see, the truth will make you free. When you realize the truth that you are one with every believer on this planet, that gives you the permission to act it. This is what doctrine is all about. And so we have this unity within diversity. What's the time? Oh well, on to the last point. I'll deal with this very, very quickly. I want to look at some of the early heresies that the church had to deal with in regards to the Trinity. Uh, when you talk about what something is, it's also helpful to learn about it by discovering what it is not. You see, it's helpful as well. So let's look at the heresies. The two principal heresies in the early church, second and third centuries, about of the Trinity, are in fact the ones that have been repeated time and time again. And the two principal ones were these. 
Firstly, there was a heresy called Sabellianism. Now this came from a bloke called Sabellius, not to be mixed up with Sibelius, who lived a few years later and wrote music, but Sabellius. <laughs> Get the cultural bit in while there's time. Um, now Sabellius came on the scene around the early third century. Now with these early heretics, we're not necessarily saying they aren't Christians. Some of them wouldn't have been. But other, you know, others would have been Christians, but you know, they just got deceived. So to be a heretic doesn't mean you're not saved. It might mean that, but it needn't mean that. But he was a heretic, and he came on the scene in the third century, right at the beginning. Now, in what he did, remember, what we've said is that there are three persons in the Trinity. They are distinct persons, yet there is one God. Now, in what he did is that he taught that there were no distinctions between the persons of the Trinity. He denied that they were distinct persons. And what he said is this, that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were three different manifestations of the one God. So that sometimes the one God would reveal himself as God the Father. Then he'd kind of take that costume off and he'd come again as Jesus. And then on another occasion he'd take the Jesus costume off and he'd appear as the Holy Spirit. So can you see that? Three manifestations which were illusory of the one God. So he destroyed the distinctions between the persons of, of the Trinity. And uh, what he was trying to do is, you see, he feared that the doctrine of the Trinity that was being discovered by the church, he feared it would end up as a kind of a polytheism, a three gods. We believe in three gods. And so he reacted you see, and his reaction was too strong and he ended up into the opposite heresy of the one he was trying to avoid. This is where strong reaction has always got to be tempered by scripture, you see, because you can jump, you can see one thing and, ah, oh, that's terrible, you see, I mean, the church has done this about the baptism with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. A lot has gone wrong, yes, there has been wrong teaching, there have been lots of unfortunate things happen, but then... Every new, every new area in my Christian life that the Lord moves me into, I always start by mucking it up anyway. So, you know, there were mistakes, yes. But then the church kind of retreated. They have nothing to do with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Satan loved that one. You see, so, you know, you've got to keep that balance the whole time. And uh, so he was correcting the doctrine of three gods as he feared that the Trinity might turn into in people's minds and he destroyed the Trinity completely. Now the second of the heresies worked the other way, you see. And for this we have a bloke called Arias. Now he was a hundred years later and what he teaches is called Arianism. And he went to the other extreme and this one is very much around today, Arianism that he so split the persons of the Trinity up. You see, he saw what Sabellianism had done, that there wasn't, you know, that, that, that this one God manifesting himself in, he, oh, my goodness, we can't have that, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he so worked on that emphasis that, in fact, what he did is that he split the persons of the Trinity and he separated them completely. So that, in fact, God the Father was God, but the Son and the Holy Spirit became lesser created gods. You see, because he was so emphasizing that only God the Father was God, that in fact there was no room for the Son and the Holy Spirit as being divine. 
So he shot to the other extreme. And uh, so in fact what happened that Jesus and the Holy Spirit ended up as divine beings but who have been created by God the Father in order to redeem us. And of course, that's a heresy. I mean, he, he said, oh yes, of course Jesus is the Son of God, but rather like a Jehovah's Witness would, you see. Mm. They, they, they don't really believe he's the Son of God when pressed. So that is, um, you know, sort of that one. Sabellianism and... Orionism, and you'll find that most of the modern sectarian movements will incorporate one of those in their teachings. So have a look at what people believe about the Trinity. It is helpful. I'm going to end uh, simply by saying something about um, the way we tend to use pictures or sort of illustrations of the Trinity. You often find preachers, you know, and people like that. Now, there are plenty of them, but I do want to urge on you to be cautious when you use a picture um, to describe a truth about God. Uh, don't press them too far. For instance, for the Trinity, you often find shamrock leaves turn up. You know, three. Uh, you find that the equilateral triangle turns up. Uh, you get what's called tripartite man, the way that man is intellect, emotions and will, and that this is said to, you know, um, reflect God. Personally, I'm doubtful about the whole lot. Um, but there is one, and in fact this is the most common illustration in my experience of the Trinity. <laughs> and it's this. Water, ice and steam. But in fact the element of water can exist in three forms. It can be solid, ice, it can be gas, steam, it can be liquid, water. Now, you know, this is often used by evangelicals as a picture of the Trinity. That is the one picture that you must not use because it's heretical. It's describing Sabellianism, that God manifests himself in three different ways. Mm -hmm. You see? So that, I mean, whereas, yeah, H2O can be steam, vapour, it can be solid, it can be a liquid, it's the same substance revealing itself in three different ways due to three different situations or states it's in. So that one, throw that away completely. It's of no use at all. So I'm going to finish there. Um, the Trinity. Praise God. Hallelujah.